Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I'm going to take us a little bit off the Parsha for a little while, and then I want to give us right now an introduction to the Parsha. I'm not going to spend as much time with as much text as um, I often do. Um, it's a really hard Parsha, particularly the first third, to really um, dig into on its own. Um, it's pretty straightforward. It's a pretty straightforward Parsha about laws that are given to the priests. But I want to talk for a second, um, a way to distinguish this text from uh, other texts in that we talked a little bit about the concept of P, the P writer. And when we talk about the P writer and P's understanding of Tum'ah, right, uh, impurity, and Tahara, purity, it's pretty clear. The priestly writer is pretty clear about purity and impurity. And we have lots of laws about what you can do and can't do and what has to happen to change you from dysregularity back to regularity. And um, Torah is pretty clear about about what has to happen, about what one has to do. So that relationship of purity and impurity and, and the relationship of that to the holy, right, because the whole idea is to keep the mishkan pure so that God's presence can dwell there. That's, the, that's what all the technology is, is about, is making that happen. So the relationship of purity and impurity and the relationship of that to the sancta, is in, in the writings of P, in the priestly writings, that relationship is static. So I want you to think about that for a second. It's a static relationship. You either are or are not pure. There's no middle ground. It's a state that you're, you're thrust into because either you know, your body's doing something or your body did something last night or you had a baby or you needed to bury a relative, whatever it is, you're thrust into that state of dysregularity. And that is, and that stays until you do the things that you have to do or wait the amount of time you have to wait and then do the rituals in order to come back into a state of regularity. It's, it, it, it is or it isn't. There's no middle ground. And that static relationship is P's understanding of how this whole business works. Embedded in P, as we know, it's a later source, is the holiness code. That began with Leviticus um, 18 and 19. We're now in Leviticus 21. We are getting the theology of the H school, the holiness code school, and H has an understanding of kedusha of holiness that is dynamic, not static. So we get a sense of there being sacred time. We do have, you know, time set aside um, in in other writers. We we studied kedush right at the women's retreat. So that, that sense of, of Shabbat being set aside is, is there. But H has a different understanding of the dynamic force that is Kedushah, that is holiness. So you could be more or less holy in your behavior. 
and in your relationship to sacred cycles of sacred time. So for the, for the H school, for the H writer, it's, it's important the decisions that we make about how to spend our time, how to spend our words, how to spend our money. These things are dynamic in terms of how they impact the amount of holiness that is present in our lives and our behavior and or that is not present in our lives and behavior. This is an important distinction when we're going to see some of these texts, because you might say, like, why is this all here all of a sudden in chapter 21? Um, and some of it is because we have now H's understanding of Kedusha and people's relationships and the community's relationship to the idea, the concept of Kedusha, which moves from being static to being dynamic. Okay. The other thing is that some of this is going to be seriously distasteful to us because it is an understanding of Tum'ah and Tahara and Kedusha, so purity and, and impurity and, um, and holiness that doesn't line up very well with a moral and ethical Judaism. It is one that is about, again, the technology of keeping the Mishkan a place of purity so that God's presence can be there. It is all technical and it is all about the priests and it's about the priest's family. So the, we're going to get the introduction of a new term before when we've talked about um, being in a state of, of, uh, of, of being Tahor, of being pure. That's how the priest has to be in order to function within the system. In the cultic system, the priest had to be pure. Otherwise, you introduce Tum'ah, dysregularity, into the sacred space. And we don't want that, right? That's, that's, and that's opposite the point of what the priests are supposed to do, which is increase right, purity and kedusha, holiness, in the sacred space. So there's been a concern that the priests not be Tameh, and H shares that concern. H shares very much the concern that a priest not be Tameh, impure, when they are dealing with the sancta. But we're going to get more strident legislation now around that that extends past the priest to the priest's household, to the priest's family. And we're going to get the introduction of a term that goes, it depends which scholar you read, does it go beyond Tum'ah? Is it more serious than Tum'ah? Or is it less than and one stage leading to the condition of Tum'ah that's introduced now? I'm pretty convinced, as is Dr. Tamar Kamienkowski, I'm pretty convinced that it is um, a worse state of than Tum'ah for a priest to be in who, who needs to serve. That it is more serious than Tum'ah, which has no judgment associated with it, Right? Um, there's no um, there, there's no judgment associated with Tum'ah and Tahara at all. Um, the word we're going to get this morning does seem to have some very serious uh, implications associated with it. Um, so Jonah, I want you to hold your question um, in mind uh, for uh, after we're done with the text. I'm very happy to address the question of what 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 can we do with this concept of the priest today in our own um, 
thinking about this this terminology. Like he says, do we have an inner priest? And so Shefa Gold uses that language a lot. Um, so remind me to get to how we've reconstructed some of these terms um, and, and how we might can reconstruct, you know, that whole notion of the priest or the priestess for our time. I'm happy to have that conversation. So this new stem that we're going to get is Chet Lamed Lamed. So we're going to get commandments, Lo Techalalu, y'all shall not. And in many of your English translations, you'll see the word profane, you know, my priest or my offerings or my holy space. So the word profane, I don't think really gets at what halal is about. Lo techalalu, you won't halal my sancta. I don't believe profane is a strong enough word. Um, I believe it really is the opposite of something being kadosh, of being sacred, to undo that status seems to be, to me anyway, and a lot of scholars, to what this halal verb seems to be about. Undoing the holiness, which is different from um, tum'ah, which happens to everybody, including people who are considered kadosh, right, who are considered set aside, like the priests. If they have a night emission or they have intercourse with their wives, which they are expected to do routinely, they become tameh. It doesn't affect their status as being priests. It does affect their ability to um, to be uh, on duty, right? So there's nothing wrong with it. They're supposed to have intercourse with their wives, but they have to wait before they can be on duty again until they are no longer in this condition of dysregularity. And they have to wash and they have to do all of that stuff. Okay, so... There's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't change the status of the priest. It only changes his condition vis-a-vis whether or not he's fit to serve in the Mishkan or in the temple, later in the temple, today, on Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, whatever it is. The verb halal seems to be a little bit different, in, well, a lot different, in that it seems to desacralize the priest. It seems to change the actual status of the priest in terms of any ability to serve. And an offering that is um, described by the, ad, by the adjective of this verb that has become profane is no longer acceptable. It moves completely out of the realm of the sacred into now it's just a piece of meat. And that is an offense to God. According to this system, that is offensive to God, to offer something that is just a slab of meat that is not, in fact, an offering that is acceptable. So I want us to really take seriously, because this text is very disturbing, um, but we have to take seriously what this word seems to mean um, in the ancient world and to the system of the priesthood. It seems to disqualify priests from serving as priests. And one of the arguments for interpreting it that strongly is um, that it's all, it's put with other material that describes other things that disqualify a priest from ever serving in the priesthood. Um, So remember in the ancient world, there was not a sense of individuality the way we understand it at all. 
people functioned in, in um, family units. The family unit was attached to the clan. The clan is attached to the tribe. The tribe is attached to the nation state. But that, that's the loosest bond. Tribe to nation is the loosest bond. The strongest bond is somebody's attachment to their family. And the family was the unit of social intercourse. It was the unit, not the individual. Individuals can impact the family. We've seen this before. We're going to see it here. We see it with males needing control to control the sexuality of females in their charge, right? Because if she is involved sexually and or mis, misuses her sexuality, meaning she's using it outside of who it belongs to, um, which is always a male, then, um, then she has impacted the honor of the family. She's impacted the family, how the family is perceived in the social setting of the ancient Near East and in ancient Israel. And, and she negatively impacts that to the point where they can't marry off other daughters um, because the family has become, in a sense, contaminated. So, so we just have to keep that in mind as we read these texts about who the priest can marry and who not and what happens with the priest's children because all of the behaviors of the family members of the priest affect the status of the priest and the ability of the priest to, to function in the setting of the ancient Israelite cult. All right. So let's, so I want, I want all of that to be there as we look at um, these laws and we don't have to like them, um, but they are what they are. And then I want to go somewhere else. Okay, so now we're in Parshat Emor, chapter 21 of the book of Leviticus. So God is speaking to Moshe here. There's five speeches that God is going to give to Moshe in this Parsha about um, things that can this verb to halel can apply to. So remember that five ways things can become desacralized. So we're going to look at that. So we're, uh, this is not the word used here. This is yitama. This is tame. So we're not looking at that verb yet. All right. So God says to Moshe, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, none shall defile himself for any dead person among his kin, except, ki'im means except, except for the relatives that are closest to him. His mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also for a virgin sister close to him because she has not married. For her, he may defile himself, but he shall not defile himself as a kinsman by marriage and so profane himself. So death impurity is the highest form of impurity there is. The priest is allowed to defile himself with the highest form of tum'ah, corpse contamination. He's allowed to do that only for blood relatives, the blood relatives closest to him. Once his sister marries, she leaves the home. She leaves the family unit and becomes a member of her husband's family. So he he's not, it's a different relationship. It's considered one step now removed. 
from when she's still in um, the house because she's not under the control of the purview of another man. So if she's married, she's now not part of the family in the same way. She's part of her husband's family. He's not to do this for a wife because she is not a blood relative. We can have all kinds of feelings about that. Doesn't matter is what it is. This is the legislation. Later Talmudic uh, interpretation, Talmudic exegesis um, makes for the, uh, the impurification, the dysregularity of corpse contamination, even for a wife. So the rabbis don't like this either. Um, and so they fix it so that um, he can, in fact, bury a wife because they're concerned, what if she has no other heir other than her husband? Let's say they're childless, their parents are dead, and she has no siblings, um, so other than married sisters. Then the priest is the only one who can be charged with burying her. And the rabbis are very concerned about that, so they, they fix it. They shall not shave smooth any parts of their heads or cut the side growth of their beards or make gashes in their flesh. All right, so we can assume, given this set of prohibitions, we can assume that this was done in the ancient Near East. We can assume it's done by pagan Canaanite people. Whenever we get very specific Stuff like this that doesn't seem to make any sense, like who cares about the side growth on their face? This, this comes about because the, the Canaanites are doing stuff like this. The question is why? Some want to say that gashing their flesh is when they are in mourning, that they self-inflict wounds as a sign of their deep grief. Um, I haven't done enough research to know, um, but clearly shaving smooth part of their heads, that might also be a mourning ritual. That's how you knew people were in mourning, cutting the side growth of their beards. Possibly this is all having to do with mourning. Um, and if it does, remember, none of this is separate from religion in the ancient world. None of it. All of these would have been religious practices. So, so most likely Israelites are being... Forbid, it's forbidden to Israelites so that they shouldn't, be act, should, they shouldn't be participating in rituals that belong to their Canaanite uh, ancestry. Um, this is why Hasidic men wear payas. This is where it comes from. They're not supposed to, to cut the side growth of their beard. So they take that quite literally, that they're never to cut it. Um, probably that's obviously not what it meant. You don't see drawings of ancient Israelite men with payas. Um, so they kind of take it one step further, um, and they never cut this, and that's why they have the – and the ringlets are just fashion. That's just fashionable. If you're going to have long hair on the sides of your face, it is fashionable to curl it. All right. Uh, it is tradition. All right. So, Kadoshim Yiyu, right? We are in the holiness code. Kadoshim Yiyu, they will be Kadosh. They will be holy. Le'elohehem, to their God. And here we go. Here's this word in verse 6. Velo yechalalu, shame Elohehem. They will not, and here they're going to use the word profane, right? So, think profanity, right? It's worse than just 
not being in a state of being able to serve in the Mishkan that day. This is profanity. This is now you've taken it and turned it into something yucky. Not only is it not Kadosh, it is the opposite. Um, it is desacralizing the name of God. It is, in a sense, um, uh, in a sense, cursing it, right? Like you, you take it from, think about whatever for you the opposite of Kadosh is. Lo um, so they shouldn't do this to the name of God, right? Um, for uh, they offer um, Adonai's offerings by fire, the food for their God, and so must be holy. So when the priest is is in any way involved in halaling, um, it also halals the name of God because they are associated with God because they are the ones serving God in the Mishkan. Isha zona v'chalala lo yikahu. So now we're getting the laws of who he can kach, who the priest can take to acquire as a wife. Who may he acquire? Who may, who may he take? Um, it doesn't say. It goes the opposite. It says who he cannot take as a wife. So he can't take a woman who's been defiled by harlotry. So again, this word halala, what does that word mean? And there's a whole thing. Uh, Tamar has a whole thing in her book about the halala. And again, she uses this word desecrate. That's the word Tamar chooses to use instead of profane is someone who has been desecrated. So a woman who's been desecrated by harlotry, nor shall they marry one divorced from her husband for they, meaning the priests are holy to their God. Um, she also has a piece in her uh, commentary on Leviticus um, that she calls pierced women. So women who have been pierced are, are not allowed to be married to priests. Um, so she says some commentators believe that this category refers to women who have been raped. So meaning pierced, not by choice while others believe that it is a term for any non-virgin, so any woman who has been pierced by sexual intercourse. Another possibility is that Halala was a cultic prostitute, um, but really um, that, that ties this word Halala to Chul, which means dancing, so meaning a sacred dancer. Um, but, the, but the word, the Bible never uses Halal or Chul to describe cultic prostitution. So, Kamikowski does not buy the argument that this is a cultic prostitute. Um, and, the, and she gives lots of uh, proof about why she believes that's not what it is. Um, she says, she quotes a, scho- a scholar, Eve Feinstein. Uh, she says, who convincingly concludes that a halala probably refers to any woman who has sex out of wedlock. This is differentiated from a professional prostitute who has sex habitually. So, um, so however we translate it, it is clear that this disqualifies somebody from being the wife of a priest. Um, my commentator Levine in the JPS commentary that I generally use says that um, why not a divorced woman? Because the only real reason that people would have asked for men would have initiated divorce proceedings was on a charge of infidelity. 
so that there's already some assumption that if she's divorced, the only reason a man would divorce his wife is on the charges of uh, adultery. Usually there wasn't enough evidence to convict her. And so uh, if there's not enough evidence to convict her, then he can divorce her because if she's convicted, we all know what happens. She wouldn't be alive to marry somebody else. All right. So um, Natasha has her hand up. I just wanted to ask about, um, it seems like if I, and maybe this is just because it's a different time period, but when the Israelites first were starting to develop their own culture, I think was still in Exodus and, and um, like the slave women, Hebrews, like, seems like they have more rights in terms of ending a relationship than than the Israelites Israelite women here do. Right? And because couldn't they initiate that where do you get evidence for that? Because I remember when we talked when we went over this that portion um that that they like if the man wasn't giving her sex that she could because she has the right to bear children, right? That like she could end that relationship. So here it's like the man has she to. Never, she never has the ability to end the relationship. Okay. In Jewish law, it's always the men who okay. do that. It is, it is Jewish. It was the law that she was entitled to those things. Okay. But it doesn't say, and then she can leave him. Okay. If he doesn't give it to her. And yes, there are developments in law for sure. And we can look at Exodus and see, you know, what is the status of marriage there? But this isn't saying anything about divorce. That was my scholar, Levine, saying, why is a divorced woman off limits to the priest? His suggestion is because the only reason men in the ancient, in this culture, the reason they would have left their wives was on suspicion of infidelity um, because it was was so um, unusual and just so not done. I mean, think about, for those of us who are a little older, you know, when I was growing up, it was still frowned upon divorce, right? Like it was the unusual circumstance in a traditional setting, like the ancient Near East, it would have been even more so, right? You just don't do it. Once you marry, it's for life, um, unless something's really wrong and it, it incurs a lot of social penalties, Um to divorce. And so I think that's where Levine's coming from. Why, why would you do this? Only, only if you were suspicious of infidelity or, or brought a charge of infidelity so that you could get the divorce. In either case, she's now tarnished, right? She's now suspect and um, an off limits to the priest for that reason. Okay. Okay. So you must treat them as holy since they offer food for your God. They shall be holy to you for I Adonai who sanctify you am holy. All of this Kadosh language. Look at verse 8. ki et lechem makriv, kadosh ki kadosh ani adonai mekadishechem. So this all this Kadosh language all over this. Um, I am the one who sanctifies y'all, and there's some of y'all who are more sanctified because they serve me my daily meals, Right, and so you can't mess with this idea of kedusha by halaling it, by desecrating it, because that's seriously, seriously bad. All right, okay. Here's this is a hard one. 
ובת איש כהן כי תחל לזנות את אביה כי מחללת באש תשרף. So if a daughter of a priest defiles herself through harlotry, she is to be burned. When we see the story of Judah and Tamar, we see this. When, he's, when Tamar is pregnant and she is in waiting for a lover at marriage with Judah's son, he commands that she be brought out to be burned. So clearly in the ancient world, including in ancient Israel, if a, if a woman commits certain um, crimes that involve her sexuality, it is so damaging to the clan that she is to be burned by fire. So it's horrifying. It's horrifying. Here's what it is. Here goes Jody Briskin. Um, Jody, if it's about burning, I don't want to talk about it. Um. <laughs> no. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, you know, we're so shocked by honor killings in the Arab world that, you know, if a daughter, whatever, or the sister, this is no different. So. No, that's absolutely. It's, it's, you know, part of, part of how the world saw women and saw how, I think one of the things it does point to is how terrifying women's sexuality is. Women's sexuality is absolutely terrifying to men. Um, and so if your culture is entirely based on male power and prerogative, then one of the most threatening things to that is the lack of control over women's sexuality. And so it incurs the highest, most disgusting penalties because you have to communicate the horror, right, of that. It has to be horrible, like literally horrible. Yeah. If it's not horrible, like horror involved, it's not enough dissuasion. Capital punishment's not enough. Um, if that's what you're really scared of and really terrified by. And it's, I mean, it's clear that that's the case. Um, that it would reflect so poorly on the priestly family that the most, the, the most terrible thing you could imagine has to be the death penalty for that crime. Yeah. The priest who exalt, is exalted above his fellows on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been ordained to wear the vestments shall not bear his head or rend his vestments. He shall not go in where there is a dead body and not defile himself even for his father or mother. So, th so some conflict, some people want to make this, that this is conflicting with what we just saw. Um, other people want to say, no, he's actually, he has to incur uh, impurity for um, taking care of their burial, but he shouldn't go hang out in the tent where their body's laying. So um, it, it's, again, it's the death contamination is the highest form and priests have to be incredibly careful about how and when they uh, allow that to happen. He shall not go outside the sanctuary and profane the sanctuary of his God, for upon him is the distinction of the anointing oil of his God, mine, Ani Adonai, I am Adonai. He may only marry a woman who is a virgin, in case we were unclear. Um, a widow or a divorced woman or one who is degraded by harlotry, such he may not marry, only a virgin of his own kin may he take to wife. And again, below Yechalel, Zaro, he may not profane his offspring among his kin. Ani Adonai Mikadsho, I am Adonai who has made him Kadosh, who has given him the status of being Kadosh. So God is going to talk to Moshe again. None of your, um, no man of your 
offspring throughout the ages who has a defect shall be qualified to offer the food of his God. Remember, the sacrifices themselves can have no defect. So if the sacrifices have to be perfect in order to be offered to God, how much more so the priest um, serving as the one most intimately involved with God. Um, and then it goes all through what, what disqualifies a priest um, in terms of uh, physical and for them, it was physical. Remember, physical beauty, physical perfection is a sign of God's favor. Um, and you may not. And so physical stuff was was seen as evidence of other stuff. It wasn't just they didn't know about genetics, right? They didn't know from genes. Um, so for them, if there was some crushed testes or you know a shorter leg than the other leg or whatever, right? This is an imperfection that disqualifies the priest from service. All right. These are all of the things, essentially, that cut off the priests from being kadosh. They are kadosh, and there are things that they can't do in these categories of things that come to Moshe in this parsha. Um, and we see, like, touching a swarming thing by which he's made, tamay, um, right? All of these things render him tamay, and he can't serve he shall remain unclean until evening and can't eat of any of the sacred offerings, right? Until, unless and until he has waited and then has washed his body in water. As soon as the sun sets, he shall be clean and then he can eat of the sacred donations because that's how they get fed, essentially. That's how they get meat. All right. And no lay person can eat of the sacred donations. So we go on and on and on and on and on here with, with categories of both tum'ah, and this, this desacralized category. Um, and so these are hindrances to Kedusha. These are hindrances to those things which um, allow a priest to be um, in a state of ritual purity. And, and, and I'm not just talking ritual purity, like that his status is impacted when we use this stem, halal. That, that changes his status entirely. It's not even about today he can't serve. We saw if he touches a swarming thing, he has to wait till evening, he has to bathe, and then he can participate in the sancta. So according to H, this is Kamiankowski, in addition to God's name, God's holy place and Israel's offerings and the priesthood all can be subject to this idea of halal, as can his his daughter, right, his family members can also, right, be in this, uh, can be affected to the point where they are now desanctified. Um, all right. So there are five speeches to Moshe by God involving this idea of what it means to be separated or cut off from Kedusha. Five speeches. All right. So, um, so the, I want to go to where um, Cantor Julie Newman, who taught for the Institute of Jewish Spirituality this week, um, where she goes with this. She goes to Buddhism, and she says, according to Buddhism, interestingly enough, there are five categories of hindrances to holiness, to Kedusha. So they don't use the word Kedusha, obviously, but the five hindrances to what we might call Kedusha um, holiness, contact with the divine, openness to the divine, um, however we want to think about that. She brings those forward 
um, and says, so if we're talking about five categories of things that cut off the ancient Israelites in, in talking about the priesthood and, and um, accessing the state of Kedusha, what can we learn from other traditions that also have a sense of being cut off from Kedusha? What gets in the way for, for us today? So this goes back to um, you know, this idea of how we bring some of these concepts forward today. Um, and I think this is a, a nice way to do that. So Jonah, pay attention. Um, so if we talk about wanting access to Kedusha, obviously we are a nation of priests, we're told elsewhere in Torah. We don't have a priesthood anymore. Um, so we are each to understand ourselves as priests and priestesses of our Mishkan Me'at. Each of us is a Mishkan Me'at, a small sanctuary. We now offer, instead of animals or sacrifices, korbanot, we now offer prayer on the altar of the heart, right? So the Mizbeach, the altar, is at our heart. There's fire on the heart. Um, we're to feed and fuel that fire with all of our worries and concerns and whatever so that we have this huge fire that can um, accept as a means of transportation. Our, it's a metaphor um, for a way that we make our prayers um, fitting offerings to the divine, thus increasing our access, which is what the korban did, the sacrifice did, brought us closer, and th then we can be brought closer in relationship to God. All right, so let's look at what gets in the way according to Buddhism. That um, They also have five categories. All right, what are those? The first is sensual desire, and this is not sex, people. So sensual meaning senses. So being... Um, so craving or, and I don't like this language of feeling attached. I don't like it. It bugs me. It, it's fine. I understand it in its context and all that. I hate it though. It just drives me crazy. So, um, so craving, I would say, instead of feeling attached, I would say being hung up on, right? Like, you know, being consumed with um, things we can see, hear, touch, and smell, right? So when we get too involved in the world of the senses, that can be a hindrance to, uh, to holiness. Another one is doubt, wondering if what we're doing is benefiting and lack of confidence that we're, quote, doing it right. Ill will and hate, having angry, unkind, or destructive thoughts towards someone, including towards ourselves, which is the default for many of us. If we're going to hate and have ill will and angry and unkind things to say for many folks, the first place they go is to themselves, saying those things about themselves or to themselves. Flurry and worry. So anxiousness, feeling tense and irritable, worries fill the mind, a sense of overload. I know none of us are familiar with any of these categories. I'm just bringing them forward as, I guess, what Buddhists have in their way. Um, sloth and torpor. Um, apathy, laziness, where the mind is numb, lethargic or sleepy, difficult to arouse interest. All right, so an overfocus on things of the senses, a sense of constant nagging doubt. Am I doing anything worthy and or am I doing it right? Um, so I would say perfectionism, right, is, is the hindrance. Um, ill will and hate, whether it's towards other people or towards ourselves, um, flurry and worry, and kind of this sense of just kind of sleepwalking through uh, our lives. These are the five hindrances in Buddhist tradition. And I think it wouldn't be very hard to find Jewish language for 
uh, many of these categories. And so even though for us, there, there isn't a sense of there being, we are to be Kadosh. We are to be a nation of holy people. And so these categories that are in Torah obviously don't work for us. They don't have anything much to say to us in terms of hindrances to Kedusha. Um, but I think the Buddhist text does, right? I, so it's not, like, it's not like there aren't hindrances. It's that what would we say today um, instead of these categories and instead of the priesthood, if we're talking about us as a nation of priests and as holy people, what are, what are the categories of hindrance? What gets in our way? Um, today of really experiencing ourselves um, as connected to the divine in relationship to the divine and in a functional relationship um, to the divine. I do think there is value um, in the categories of hindrances. I do think that's helpful. And I love that Cantor Julie Newman um, knew enough to bring that forward because I think that is a way to reconstruct this text. And to Jonah, to your point, you know, this is how I can reclaim the role of the priestess in my Mishkan, right? You know, how do I bring forward, and Shefa Gold uses this language a lot, how do I call forward the priestess um, in my own Mishkan, in my own sense of m- me being a-, a temple, me being um, a-, a Mishkan Me'at, a small sanctuary? And uh, how do we cultivate a sense of kedusha, of holiness, both of that space, the interior of that space, and how we how that space interacts with the the world outside us. I do think those categories are helpful. So I want to make sure I give you time and room to speak, to either ask questions or to uh, comment. So um, go ahead, George. Okay. I have one, a question and two, a suggestion. The question is halal also in in Islam means uh, in essence kosher. No, that's halal with a hey, not halal with a chet. Uh. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. So it's different. All right. Right, like Hallel. Hallel and Halal are the same for us. Hallel, praise, like what is fitting. Halal is, is deep desacralization. Okay, thank you. The other comment is that you started off saying that the different definitions of purity, one was static and one was dynamic. Uh, I would suggest instead of static, say dichotomous, that it's either good or bad, and that the dynamic means fluid, which really means gray. It's not white or black, but you can be in the middle someplace and strive perhaps towards the uh, ideal. All right, so I will accept dichotomous. I will accept gray, not black and white. I, will, I don't want to use judgment language because Torah doesn't use it. It's not good or bad. There's no good or bad in tum'ah. In the static sense of tum'ah, you either are in a state of regularity or dysregularity. If I have my period, I'm in a state of dysregularity. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. not bad. It has to happen every month or I can't conceive. So it, it's not a, it is not a bad thing. I'm just disrupted from the normal state of affairs. That's all it means. If you have sex, that's a good thing. That can be a very good thing sometimes, every now and then. And then you, you're dysregulated in a good way, but you're not regular. So there's no judgment in Tum'ah and Tahara. 
It means, though, that that you can't serve, right, in the Kadosh area while you are experiencing the condition of dysregularity. That's a static relationship. You are or you aren't. And I will. you want to use dichotomous? That works fine for me. It's dichotomous. You are or you aren't. It's black mm-hmm. or white. In the H system, there is a relationship to Kedusha that is not about just you know, pure or impure, regular or dysregular. There's a relationship to Kedusha that is, like you say, in the gray zone, in the gray area. And that is about my moral and ethical behavior, my choices. That's very different from you have a nighty mission and now you're immediately tame. Does that make sense? It, it's a dynamic relationship in that I impact it by my behavior. My relationship to holiness becomes, becomes a much more dynamic thing than just you are or you aren't holy. There is, there is no I'm not, not holy. Only the priests are holy in that sense of being kadosh. My relationship to kadusha, according to H, the holiness code, can be impacted by my behavior. That's a new concept for P. That doesn't exist in P anywhere. Halal does not exist in P anywhere, only in H. And it's used 21 times. So it's a, it's a different concept of a relationship to Kedusha than we have seen in the priestly system before H. And remember, we believe H is a response to the early prophets. That the priest, There's a, a school of H within the priesthood that had to respond to Amos and all of these early prophets saying, all you care about is doing your offerings correctly. What about fairness in business? What about not talking badly about other people? Right? So what about lying? Right? So there's, that's H in the P system that is new. And in that sense, there is this sense of dynamism that doesn't exist in the static dichotomous system of you are or you aren't. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you're bringing in, and, and maybe this is the purpose, bringing in other kinds of things totally not mentioned in that static relation. Is that the right. morality is right. just totally new. Right. Yes, exactly. That, that, that morality impacts our relationship to holiness. holiness. That is a new idea. That's new. That is nowhere in P. P has no judgment about any of that stuff. It comes into P in H, right? The school of H, the holiness school. Okay, thank you. It's, that's total, in one sense, total separation of definition between the two because of the addition of the morality. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Thank yes. you. <laughs> and talking about uh, evolution, I, I really like this idea. You mentioned that we now have more of a concept of we are all a mikdash, a sanctuary, and that our job in life is to is to build holiness in our sanctuary, meaning our ourselves and our lives, which is a beautiful contemporary idea. How old is that? I mean, we're, how, how did we get from where where we were in this parsha up yeah, to yeah. that idea? Which I, I would argue, I would argue it's not contemporary. I would argue it's rabbinic. So the minute the temple is destroyed, they had a choice. 
You either say, okay, we're done with all of this stuff or we reconstruct it. They chose the latter. They chose to be reconstructionists. So they took the language and the symbolism of the Mishkan and lay it onto the new reality, which is there aren't any priests. So what do they say? If there aren't any priests, then you have to say, we're done with that language, or you go, we're all priests now. And we're going to reclaim and reconstruct that language and use it, the altar. The altar becomes the heart, right? It's all metaphor. They could have left that language and those symbols entirely. That was one choice. Or you reconstruct it. Right, as did Christianity. Christianity reconstructed those ideas as well. Jesus becomes the sacrifice. The blood atones. They, they keep a relationship to that language and those symbols as well. Judaism just went completely metaphorical. It, it's, it's only metaphor now. It's still powerful metaphor, but it's only metaphorical. Christianity kept a relationship to the actual concept of sacrifice atoning for the people and rites of purification, like holy water, right? And all that kind of stuff, baptism, like all that stuff. Christianity keeps it kind of the literal concepts and reconstructs those concepts. Judaism leaves them entirely as concepts and uses them now as symbols and metaphors for the new relationship, which is prayer. Right. And, and ethical and moral behavior, as we just said, like that, that is what produces a life of Kedusha, of holiness, is how we behave in the world. But there are segments of Judaism that look for the building of the third temple. Sure, but they don't claim Do they it, reject it that. Do they now. reject? But nobody claims it exists now that they long for it again. Fine. But they don't claim we ha- you know what I mean? Like, yes, they want that system to come back. I don't believe they do, by the way. I don't believe it. I think it's a bunch of malarkey um, because they'd be out of a job. Every single one of them would be out of a job and they would have to look at the priests and be blessed by the priests. You cannot convince me that rabbinic Jews, Orthodox rabbinic Jews want the third temple. They say they do, but I don't believe it. So, um, I mean, they want a time where God rules on earth for sure and want things to be fair and just according to the divine, of course, who doesn't want some, divine authority to come in here and fix all this mess. Um, but I, I really don't believe they, they want to stop davening and studying Talmud and, and offer, a, you know, a sheep instead. I don't believe it. Um, I'd like to see them on George, on Mark's couch, Mark Fish, George, all you guys and women who are therapists. I'd love to see them, Robert Siegel, Richard Siegel. I'd love to see them on their couch and really unpack that. My bet is they don't want that. So, um, but anyway, but, but none of them would argue that that system is in place now. The altar we have now is the altar of the heart. That's our reality right now. We don't have any other kind of Mishkan and no one argues except the Mormons maybe. So as beautiful, as beautiful as the idea is of uh, us being a sanctuary that we're trying to uh, build holiness in, that still is not the, pervasive idea of most Jews. Uh, you mean the language that they would use? Yeah, yeah, they, the language or even the thrust of how they practice Judaism. I mean, you're talking about something really beautiful. I think it's wonderful. But I don't know that most Jews would think that's what Judaism is today. Or am I wrong? I think, I think Judaism is different things for different people today. I think our issue, our challenge 
with even that metaphor is that I don't know how interested Jews are in the language of holiness anymore. That that's where I kind of, I see the challenge. Um, I just, it, it doesn't resonate in our, I think for a lot of people, it doesn't resonate in our culture that is so obsessed with science being the only way to talk about anything, um, which I call scientism. There's nothing wrong with science. There's something terribly wrong with scientism. Science can tell us how. Science cannot say anything about why. Nothing about the why questions, the what do I do with this? This is how this person died. This is what caused it. Science can tell us that. Science doesn't tell me how to live without that person, um, unless we're talking to soft sciences. But, um, right, so, or, or what I'm supposed to do with that. What's the meaning of that in my life? Why does the world exist? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Science has nothing to say to that. So I think in our, in our culture, scientism has made it such that those other kinds of questions, we don't have a rich language for it even right now. And, and, and I don't think people are, are so attached to finding language that works for them or even a concept of some of that stuff that, that works for them. And I find that deeply distressing. I think it's why we have so much depression and isolation and suicide um, and anxiety in our society today is because we have left these concepts and turned to only physical evidence having anything to say to the, to the human condition. And I'm not saying this is, you know, I don't want to be too dichotomous in George's language about it, but um, I'm deeply, I'm very concerned about Judaism. I'm very concerned about the Jewish people's relationship to, to this language, to these symbols, to these metaphors. Um, I'm very concerned that we have devalued the sacred. We have devalued the invisible. We have devalued the stuff that you can't see, touch, smell, weigh, um, measure. I'm very concerned about it. I, I even look at my daughter, and, and I, I'm very concerned about, about the, the sense of there's no relationship to what's on the other side of the veil. N- none that, that I can tell. Um, except a vague sense of unease and a lot of anxiousness and a lot of um, a lot of stress and anxiety that because there's no language and there's no rituals there's no there's no vocabulary there's no experiences that affirm our relationship to to that whole system that whole symbolic system it, it concerns me. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.